Welcome to the First Baptist Cadillac podcast. First Baptist Cadillac is a growing intergenerational family of faith whose mission is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Join us each week as we engage God's word together. We would love to hear from you. Please contact us at firstbaptistcadillac.org or text WELCOME to 231-261-1112. Good morning. I know we're, we're technically through the countdown already. We are running a little behind in the commons. Uh, I don't know about y'all. We had a great time of worship this morning. <clears throat> It is great to be here uh, with you this morning, and we are so glad, really glad that you chose or have joined us to worship and to hear from the Word this morning. There are, I'm going to jump right in, because I went over my sermon Friday, and I went over my sermon this morning, and the first time it was 52 minutes, and the second time it was 41 minutes, so hopefully we can trim it back just a little bit more. Uh, I don't want to keep you past lunch today, so Um, let's jump right in. There are few men who have had as great an impact or had as great an impact on 18th century as John Wesley did. Uh, He did a lot of things. He was born in 1703. He was the 15th of 19 children to Susanna and Samuel Wesley. Uh, At five years old, he was in a house fire. His dad was a pastor, and they were in a parsonage, and the parsonage burnt down. Sorry. My ear's smaller than Chad's. The parsonage burnt down, uh, and as they were getting all the kids out, they couldn't find John, and as they were standing in the yard, they looked up and saw that he was in an upstairs window, and there was a rescuer outside, and John jumped out of the window, and the rescuer caught him as the roof was caving in. Um, and it was at that moment that Susanna knew John was spared for a specific purpose. He had a specific purpose in life. He had a future. God had a plan for him. And later in life, John would say he was a brand plucked from the fire, right? that he, he had been set aside for a, a specific purpose. But he was brilliant. Uh, he taught Greek and logic at Lincoln Co- College, which is part of Oxford. He was ordained as a priest in the Church of England in 1728. And then he went back to Oxford where he joined a group that strove to uh, live and build a holy life. And he, that group included people like Charles Wesley, his brother who wrote, Christ the Lord is risen today. Uh, Hark the herald angels sing, come thou long expected Jesus, and thousands of other hymns. Uh, his brother was a prolific hymn writer. And George Whitfield was part of that group who was instrumental in the first American Great Awakening and the Great Awakening in England. And together, they were striving to build a holy life. They met for prayer. They studied the Greek New Testament because they wanted to scrape every bit of meaning and knowledge they could out of it. And they did all kinds of different devotional exercises. Uh, John would get up and pray for an hour before he did anything else. He went to uh, take communion every week. He fasted twice a week. He really, he set himself on conquering every sin in his life that he could. He visited prisons. He worked with the sick and the poor. He helped to build and fund schools, to build hospitals. 
He was really devoted to living a Christian life. In 1735, though, he became a missionary. He accepted an invitation to go to the colonies in Georgia, and on the way there, uh, his boat was nearly shipwrecked. They were in a really bad storm. The main mast uh, was broken half. There was water pouring into the ship, and there was this group of German Moravians who was kind of they were amongst the passengers. They were kind of off on their own, singing hymns. And something about that stood out to John because he was absolutely terrified. And he asked them, what, what is wrong with you? Right? Why aren't you scared? Why aren't your women and kids scared like I'm scared? And in that moment, he realized that he was missing something. He didn't feel as if he was saved. And he wasn't really sure yet why, but he knew that something wasn't quite right. His time in America didn't go so well. He was a bit of a failure as a missionary, didn't convert anybody, offended a lot of people, caused some issues, went back to England. And when we got there, he found some of those Moravians and spent some time being discipled by them. Now, the morning of May 24th, 1738, he was flipping through his Bible, trying to figure out where to pick up and where to read. And he came across Mark 12, 34, where it says this, you are not far from the kingdom of God. You are not far from the kingdom of God. And he took that as encouragement, right? He had just had this experience on a ship a few years before where he felt terrified. He wasn't assured that he was in the kingdom of God. He was searching. He didn't know what for. And his eyes fall on these words that says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And he took that as encouragement. We'll get to more of John's story in a little bit. But as we read this morning, you're going to see that there are some parallels between John's life and between the lives of some of the characters that are in this story. So let's jump in. Mark chapter 12, 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. Jesus answered, the most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The scribe in this story is a teacher of the law. He would have spent all kinds of time really just pouring over the laws and the commandments, trying to discover as much meaning or as many you know, minute details that he could hold people accountable to as possible to make sure that he was fulfilling every part of the law. But in this moment, he was impressed by Jesus' teaching. He's, he's impressed by what Jesus has to say. And what's interesting is he doesn't seem to have any malicious intent in his question. And remember, the last four or five weeks, we've talked about how people have been confronting Jesus, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They've been confronting Jesus' authority. They've been trying to trap him. They've been trying to trip him up. And 
figure out a way to condemn him, to send him to his death. But this scribe seems to ask a question that doesn't have any kind of malicious intent. Which commandment is the most important of all? And that was a pretty common debate amongst scribes, amongst the Pharisees and Sadducees, the religious teachers. It was often used to measure um, a teacher's ability, their knowledge of Scripture. How would they answer this question? What did they see as the most important rule of all? The scribes had identified that there were 613 commandments. That's a lot of commandments. 613, 365 negatives, right? like 365 don'ts, and then 248 positives, things that we should do. And then amongst those, there were heavy commandments and light commandments, things that were more or less important. And an example of one of the answers that a rabbi had given before uh, Jesus was this. Um, he actually said this, uh, a Gentile had questioned him and said, can you answer all of the laws? Can you give me all the laws while you stand on one foot on a stump? <laughs> so he said, sure, what is hateful to you, do not to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah, while the rest is commentary thereof. Finished. <laughs> right? Simple enough. All 613 commandments right there. Uh, but the thing is, Rabbi Hillel, the scribe, John Wesley, they were so close, but they were yet so far. Right? They're so close, but they're still so far. They, they are disciplined. They had all of the answers. Right? If you asked them anything about the scriptures, they could have given you the answer right away. They followed a strict biblical discipline, but there was still something missing. Right? They still didn't get it. They were so close, but they were still so far. Verse 29 and 31 is uh, Jesus' response. Let me just read it again. The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. You may recognize it. From Deuteronomy chapter 6, 4 through 9. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them, down, write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Right, that's the Shema. Chad referenced it last week, too. Uh, and the Shema was recited twice a day. If they were devout Jews, they would wake up in the morning, and the first thing they'd do is they'd recite the Shema. And then the last thing they did before they went to bed at night, they'd recite the Shema. And then they also, they took verse 8 very literally. They, they had these things, they were called phylacteries, that they would tie around their wrists or around their hands. Um, some of them right on their foreheads as a little box, basically, that carried these words of Scripture from Deuteronomy 4, or 6, 4 through 9. They'd have it on a scroll or a script, and they'd tuck it away in this box, and they would carry it with them everywhere they went. Right? The Shema carried extreme weight for Jews. These words were also contained in the mezuzah, which is uh, either a wood or metal casing that would be attached to a doorpost. 
uh, and the same words would be tucked in that casing. So every day that they went in and out of their house, they'd see that doorpost, they'd see the mezuzah there, and they'd be reminded of those words, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and all your strength. So Jesus is establishing a common ground with the Jews. He's affirming some of their practices, some of the things that they said, right? He's, he's saying, this part of your life, you've got it dead on. Right? You've, you've got this part figured out. So overall, this first part of Jesus' question really comes as no shock, right? They, they understood his response. They knew that it was right. They knew that it was good. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. And most scholars would say that that those four things are not meant to be taken as four individual concepts, but that they're supposed to represent the whole self. So simplified, you might say, love the Lord your God with your whole self. Right? That's what Jesus is trying to say in this moment. I think, though, it can also be a bit of a tool. Right? The, the words are meant to demonstrate that it's an all-encompassing all-consuming love, but it also can be used as a, a, a tool, I guess, right? Those four words to gauge our life. How well am I loving God or using my heart, my mind, my soul, my strength to love God, to glorify God? In a book that I was reading recently, um, there's a great illustration that I found kind of helpful. It's based on the Shema. It's here on the screen behind me. And this illustration is to help us see how to grow and to mature in faith and to see that we can't separate any part from the equation if we're going to grow to become more like Christ. All right, to love God well in each of these areas, we need to know that we need to continue to grow in each of them and to grow in them together. So you've got the mind, right, which represents biblical knowledge. You've got the heart, which represents spiritual intimacy or emotion. And I think sometimes... In just the church where we're at right now, for whatever reason, we have some churches that tend to think that it should be more intellectual and some that think it should be more emotional. And we tend to separate one or the other. And I think we really got to make sure that we're encompassing all the above. We can't take our heart, our heart out of worship and still be worshiping the same God. And then the last thing, will, represents holy obedience. Right? And if we are growing in each of those things well, we're moving towards the center, and as we're moving towards the center, we're becoming more and more like Christ. Right? We should represent Christ as we grow towards the center, that mind, heart, and the will. All those things overlap and become one picture of who Christ is. But what happens when they're out of balance? Right? If you've got biblical knowledge without spiritual intimacy, without holy obedience, then you have intellectualism. And the most important thing becomes knowing how to give and know truth rather than to know how to live truth. If we have spiritual intimacy without biblical knowledge and holy obedience, then we have emotionalism, right? And our faith risks chasing emotion versus devotion. If we have holy obedience without spiritual intimacy and biblical knowledge, we risk legalism. Right? We risk focusing on a list of rules and really leaning into this idea of works righteousness rather than relying on Christ's sacrifice to save us from our sin. 
we, come, we become more like the Pharisees and the Sadducees if we lean into holy obedience without spiritual intimacy and biblical knowledge. So as you're growing in your faith and your love of God, are you growing in balance? Right? I know for me, if I'm imbalanced, it tends to be either I'm leaning too much into the intellectual side or I'm leaning too much into the emotional side. And I tend to be kind of like a pendulum <laughs> that swings back and forth. So I know those are two areas that I have to be intentional about growing in both of them equally. So where do you find yourself? So let's get back to the second half of Jesus' answer where he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Right? This is where Jesus starts to shake things up. It wouldn't have been surprising to hear him speak about neighbors, right? That was in Rabbi Hillel's answer too. But what's different is Jesus puts the two together. He answers them in a specific order to show that they're inseparable. 1 John 4, 19 through 20 says, We love God. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. In his order, Jesus is showing us the order of importance, right? He's, he's showing us that God is number one and neighbor is number two, but that there's a causation between the two. There's a cause and effect that happens. If we love God, we can't not love our neighbor. Right? If we love God, we must love our neighbor's. But also, in order to love our neighbors well, we need to first love God. There's a causation, there's a cause and effect there. And in Luke's account, Jesus goes on to define what a neighbor is. Right? In the Gospels, a lot of times there's an overlapping accounts, or there's similar stories, and you catch different pieces in each one. And in Luke's story, he talks about the parable of the Good Samaritan. Right? The Jew goes out in the morning, and he is... Uh, jumped, <laughs> and he's beat, and he's left for dead. And people who should pick him up, people who are Jewish, who are of the law, who should pick him up, they walk right by because they don't have time. And along comes a Samaritan who would be his enemy, who would be an outcast, who need, the two wouldn't want anything to do with each other. The Samaritan sees him laying on the ground. He's one who kneels down, who takes the time to pick him up, to go and take care of him on his own dollar, Right? And in that, Jesus is redefining what a neighbor is. He's saying our neighbors aren't just our family and friends. They're not just the people who live close to us. They're not just our fellow believers. Our neighbor is anybody who we come across during the day. No matter whether they're our enemies, they're our outcasts, whether they're somebody who we think is worthy of our time or somebody who we don't feel is worthy of our time, anybody we come across is our neighbor, and we are to love them. Jesus is intentional about saying, love your neighbor as yourself. And I thought of some questions, came across some questions really this week that I thought were really great. So ask these questions as you gauge your love for your neighbor. Are we tolerant of our neighbors? Do we make time for our neighbors? Are we interested in our neighbors? Do we make excuses for our neighbors? Do we deeply desire the welfare of our neighbors? And do we do these things for our neighbors the way we would do them for ourselves? So in other words, 
Am I tolerant of my neighbor's sins the way I'm tolerant of my sins? Do I make time for my neighbors the way that I hope people, maybe even my family, would make time for me? Do I make excuses for my neighbors the way I make excuses for myself? Do I, do I desire my, wealth, my neighbor's welfare to the degree that I desire my own? I think those are really great questions that we can ask ourselves to kind of get a, a feel for how do we really feel about our neighbors. So moving on. And I love this quote from, from R. Kent Hughes this week. It says this, It does not take much of a man to be a believer, but it takes all there is of him. It does not take much of a man to be a believer, but it does take all there is of him. Jesus' answer is brilliant. Right? He references this dearly held Shema. He references something that everybody who's hearing him would have cared about, who could have agreed on. And then in the second part of his answer, he, he brings in the rest of the Ten Commandments. In his first part, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your might. This is the first four commandments. Love your neighbor as yourself, second six commandments. And the way that he answers requires 100% of our devotion. Right? We live in a day and age where I think more than any other, we have divided loyalties in our time, in our finances, in our relationships, in the things that we care about. We have divided loyalties, and it's hard at times to focus completely on God. And in Jesus' answer, he is requiring 100% devotion. And this is the scribe's response to him. Verse 33 through 34. 32 and 33, sorry. You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more, and this is the key, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Remember the scribe. He's part of the group that's trying to trap Jesus. He's part of the elite crowd. And by acknowledging the truth and the merit of Christ's answer, it's almost as if he's, he's taking a step closer to Christ and saying, okay, right? maybe, maybe there is something to this guy. If nothing else, he's got wisdom. He got the answer right. He's got the answer better than I seem to. It's almost as if he's taking a step closer to Christ. And then in that second half of his answer, when he's saying that there's, what Jesus has just said is more than the burnt offerings and sacrifices, it's as if he's taking another step towards Christ. Remember, it wasn't that long ago, I think in chapter 11, when Jesus clears out the temple. Right? He goes and he, he's telling the Pharisees and the Sadducees that everything they're doing is wrong. Right? They shouldn't be trying to scrape the poor for every penny they've got. The offerings and the sacrifices, the way that they're requiring them is, is not correct. These people and the scribes and the teachers of the law, they spent their, the vast majority of their time pouring over these sacrifices, pouring over these laws. It's where their power came from. It's where their identity came from. It's where their value came from. And Jesus kind of takes all those things out of the equation. And the scribe says, teacher, you're right. 
love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength, and loving your neighbor is more important than the offerings and the sacrifices. And it's almost as if he's taking another step closer to leave that life behind and step into Christ's life. But still, he's, he's so close, but he's so far. All the pieces are there. All the, all the pieces necessary are there. He just needs to acknowledge Christ as the Son of God and to put his faith in him. That's all that's left for him to do. And by all, I mean, he'd kind of be like a super Christian if, if he would just put his faith in Christ. He's got all the other stuff lined up. He's got the devotion piece. He's got the holy obedience piece. He's got the intellect piece. He just needs to put his faith in Christ. It's a lot like John Wesley. Wesley was a master of external discipline, but there is a piece of the inward requirements of faith that he was missing, and that was leaning completely on Christ and acknowledging that Christ was the only way. They were both so close, but yet so far, and in trying to love God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind and their strength, both Wesley and the scribe would eventually come to realize they couldn't do it. They would both come to realize that it was an impossible task. They were bound to trip up. They had divided loyalties, just like everybody else does, because we have this corrupt sin nature within us. And they were bound to realize eventually that it would require the death of a Messiah, the sacrifice to end all sacrifices, and our faith put in that Savior who went to the cross for us. It would take that faith to be saved. Wesley's experience in that ship as he thought he was going to die, <laughs> seeing the Moravians at peace with a certain assurance that he didn't have, brought him to a point to realize he was missing something. Brought him up to that point to realize, maybe I haven't put my faith in Christ. Maybe all of this laws and rules and discipline and stuff isn't all it's cracked up to be. And then on the night of May 24th, 1738, remember this is the same day that as he was waking up and he saw in his devotions that you are not far from the kingdom, his journal says this about that evening. In the evening I went very unwillingly, <laughs> I like that, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, as an assurance, an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. Wesley would describe that moment, certain assurance of his faith, but in his journal, what I see as the difference maker is, he's talking about the the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. Right? Christ alone. Not through what we can do. Not based on our merit. We sang a song in the comments this morning about um, all sufficient merit. Right? That it's Jesus's and not my own. Because of that, because of Christ's merit, not ours, we can be saved. And from that point on, John was a changed man. He preached everywhere he went. In the streets, in the mines, in factories, in churches, on horseback. He even preached on his father's tombstone, <laughs> given the chance. 
He preached 42,000 sermons. I can't even begin to wrap my mind around preaching 42,000 sermons three times a day, in between which he was riding 60 to 70 miles on horseback every day, 4,500 miles a year, 250,000 miles in his lifetime, all to preach the gospel. He took the gospel to the masses and empowered others to do the same in a way that nobody else before him really had. But for so long before that moment, for so long, he was so close to the kingdom and yet still so far. It's possible to grow up in church. It's possible to grow up with godly parents and never come to a saving knowledge of who Christ is. It's possible to study scripture and theology your entire life and still never really come to a saving knowledge, a saving faith of who Christ is. It's possible to hear the grace of Christ preached every week and still, for whatever reason, rely, rely on our own merits to think that we can do enough to get into the kingdom. It's possible to become gospel-hardened by continually hearing the message and never really responding. It's possible to be within an inch of the kingdom and still not quite in it. I love how Hughes put it in the commentary I was reading this week. He said this, Convictions not acted on die. Truths not followed fade. Lingering can become habit. And we can either go in or we can go further away. So the application for this morning, kind of where the rubber meets the road, I guess. I think it's simple. If you're already a Christian, if you've already put your faith in Christ, this passage is pretty self-explanatory. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Right? Love God with your whole self and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the first thing. The second, continue striving to be more like Christ, maturing in faith. Right, so if, if you are a Christian and you've not been baptized yet, that would be the first step I would encourage you to take. Right, if, you've, if you're a Christian and you've not been baptized, I would encourage you to take that step of baptism. And then as far as the ministries that we have here, the ways that we are best able to walk alongside you in your walk of faith, I would say connect groups, women's ministry, men's ministry, ways that you can get involved with the kingdom, with a fellowship of believers to have people who walk alongside you, right? Take those initial steps of faith. And then after that, I would suggest D groups. Right? These are different ways that we're as a church able to help people walk in their faith. And these are just a few. There's all kinds of different ways that you can grow as a believer, those are just three of the ways that we're, as a church, best prepared to help you walk in your faith. So those are three steps that I would suggest. And then the last one, and this is more important than anything else, the thing that I want desperately, if you've not put your faith in Christ yet, don't wait. If, if I could go the rest of my life and have one message to preach, it would be the pure and simple gospel if I knew it meant that people would come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. So if you've not done that yet, don't wait. Right? Don't be like the scribe who was so close, who was so close to the kingdom and still so far away. Remember what I said earlier, what Hughes said earlier, really. It doesn't take much of a man to become a believer. 
but it does take all of him. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have all of life together. You could be sitting here this morning addicted to everything under the sun, and if you're ready to give your whole self to Christ, that's all that matters. You do not have to be perfect by any means. You don't have to have anything to offer Christ. In fact, we have nothing to offer Christ. There is nothing that we could offer God that he doesn't already have. So let's not try and pretend like we can. Let's not try to get everything in line. Let's give our lives to Christ now and forever. Give yourself to him heart, mind, soul, and strength. So that's my challenge for you this morning. And like we've had since New Year's, we're going to have people around the, the sanctuary who are prepared to pray with you. Same in the comments. And if you're joining us this morning online and you're making a decision for Christ, if you want to call us, don't call the office today because it's not open. But <laughs> if you want to call tomorrow, we would be happy to pray with you. Um, it's such an important moment. So if you, that's you this morning, it's possible for you to sit in your seat right where you are. It doesn't take any spe- special words or anything. It's possible for you to sit in your seat and accept Christ. But I want to encourage you to go the next step, to stand up and pray with somebody, because it's important to have somebody pray over your life, right? To have somebody who's praying for you tomorrow. When you leave church today and life gets difficult and things change a little bit and there's not somebody walking alongside you, to have somebody praying for you is so important. So if that's you this morning, you're making that decision, I want to encourage you to pray with somebody. And if you have any other need, if you need to pray for healing, you need to pray for guidance, you need to pray for anything, I just I want to encourage you to take some time and pray. And I know there's times that maybe it feels a little awkward when we've got people who are around the room, because this is kind of new to us, and you're thinking maybe you're somebody who's not in a step of that, you know what I mean. This isn't the step you're taking. Um, I think we maybe have a slide of, of some prayer prompts. We may not. Um, but I just want to, yeah, here we go. There's a slide with some things that you can pray in your seat. Or if you need to go pray with somebody with them, you can. Right, who is somebody that would hear your voice and step into the kingdom of God today? Right, God, I pray that in filling that blank would, would hear your voice. Second, God, I confess my sin of you. What's a sin that is holding you back from loving God with your whole self? Is there something in your life, a habitual sin of some sort, that's building a barrier between you and God, and you feel like it's getting harder and harder to get closer to him? Confess that this morning and leave it here when you leave. And then third, God, strengthen me to love you with whatever that space is, heart, mind, soul, strength. What is the one that you struggle with the most? What's the hardest for you to give to God? God, strengthen me to love you with whatever that is by, and think of of something specific you can do. And I just want to encourage you to take the time that you need to this morning to pray, whether it's by yourself or it's with somebody around the room. But let's pray as we close. God, thank you. Thank you for assurance. Thank you for an inner peace that we get when we give our faith, our lives to you. I pray this morning that if there is somebody in this, this house that you would speak to them whether in a quiet whisper or whether it's shouting in some way, that today's the day to give their life to you. God, you are an amazing God. 
I pray that you would take everything that we are in our imperfection, all the screwed up dirtiness, that you would take it and make it perfect because that's exactly what you've done in the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. God, whatever anybody's going through this morning, whether it's an issue of health, finances, mental illness, um, job loss, just feeling maybe a bit aimless, God, I pray that you would step into that moment and that you would give them some clarity and some peace. God, we're so thankful to be here in your house to worship you this morning. I pray that everything that we've said and done would glorify you. And I pray that as we go with, out this week with you, that we would feel and sense your presence working strongly in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.